Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we talk about the latest on the UK economy and ask where the opportunities are, how many of the changes we've seen to our lifestyles are likely permanent, and if there is too much debt or not enough. With Nikki Eggers, Head of Investments, Matt Hammerstein, Barclays UK CEO, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. Hello, welcome to another edition of Word on the Street. This week, we have the privilege of having our Barclays UK CEO, Chief Executive, uh, Matt Hammerstein, returning to us. Um, He's going to share some more pearls of wisdom and insight. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome back. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, we obviously, thankfully, didn't put you off too badly last time. so (laughs) So that's good news. We also have Will, as usual, bringing us the views of the wider investment team around what's going on in the world at large. So, Will, if I may, I'll, I'll start with you quickly about some context, if you can, around the UK economy. Where where are we at right now? Hello, Nikki. Hello, Matt. Where are we at? Well, much like the rest of the world, the story of the UK economy so far this year is one of kind of, you know, a record shattering drop in output in the first half of the year, um, as policymakers put large chunks of the world economy into that kind of induced coma we've talked about, followed by an equally jaw-dropping recovery so far in the sort of, you know, over the course of the third quarter. Now, to give you a sense of how much that recovery has surprised both central bankers and other forecasters, in May, uh, the Bank of England, a Bank Bank of England forecast for the third quarter was expected the UK economy to be around 20% below, uh, in output terms, its pre-COVID level. Now, the professional forecasting community was significantly bleaker still at that point. Now, that same forecast see UK output from the Bank of England uh, 3 to 4% below its pre-COVID level by the end of third quarter. So as an aside, that should provide helpful context for the incredible recovery in stocks we've seen the world over, in equities. You know, expectations have changed dramatically, helping to underpin, you know, that that amazing rise in stock markets from, uh, from the lows of March. But anyway... For this recovery, the key element in the UK has been, uh, you know, key element of surprise has really been, and again, this is the same the world over, has been how robust consumer spending has proved. The Bank of England estimate that consumer spending has been rising at about 2% a week since May and is now more or less fully recovered in aggregate. Now, the detail obviously looks very different with less spending in hotels, accommodation, uh, you know, and more on household goods and food. There is also, I think, just, you know, final couple of points. There's plenty concerning out there, of course, Uh, still, you know, business investment is still well down. Online job vacancies are about 45% lower. You know, most still expect a sharp rise in unemployment as we tread into the um, the new job support scheme. But the interesting point, I think, is that, you know, this week, the, the last week, this, the chief economist for the Bank of England, you know, he was actually worried that the British population was succumbing to this sort of something called catastrophizing, um, which is essentially, you know, d- d- Hard to over, say. over. <laughs> yeah, it is. I very nearly didn't manage it, but I did try. Well done. But so and, <laughs> that's the first victory of the morning. But that's really de-emphasizing the best things and fixating on the worst, whatever the balance of, uh, of risks. Um, and I think that leads to, you know, higher savings ratios and a bit more sort of the necessary caution uh, in the economy. So there are hard yards to go, no doubt about it. But I think we don't want to sort of forget how far we've come back from the lows of the first half of the year. Yeah, and that, and that is quite some contrast you you described there, mm. right? Between what was expected at the start of this and 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 where we are now. But as you mm. say, still quite a lot of uncertainty. And Matt, so 
I, I know that you spend so much time talking to our clients and customers, our colleagues in you know every area of the front line. What what are you hearing from them? I mean, how how are our clients and customers faring within this backdrop that that Will just described? From a practical and an emotional standpoint, I think that what we hear from people is not dissimilar to what Will described for the overall economy. It was a deeply uncertain and very scary period of time as lockdown hit and uh, people were fearful about what that would mean for their own personal health, their own personal finances, and and ultimately, I guess, you know, connected to that, their employment. As lockdown then eased at the back end of summer, um, I think we very quickly saw people effectively revert back to some form of a new normal. So I think when I was last here, we talked about the fact that in the the depths of lockdown spending, it was down anywhere from 40 to 45 percent relative to where it had been in prior, you know, a year prior. Um, yeah. We've now seen that recover to a point where spending is now in aggregate up above where it was on a prior year. The, the challenge, though, with those headline figures is, of course, underneath that, you've got some very different sort of outcomes for different sectors of the economy and therefore different people. So, you know, we still see people in you know, the retail and sort of travel industries, obviously very, very deeply affected by the, the, the consequences on their employers and therefore their own personal economics and finances. And, uh, you know, finding the right balance between supporting, if you will, the breadth of uh, the population that feel like things have now reverted to some form of normal um, and those who are still very deeply affected is, I think, now going to become the challenge. And then for small businesses, I think it's very similar. So the, the small businesses that I think have been able to adapt and uh, find different ways of accommodating sort of how the world works now are doing really, really well. Um, and we continue to see, you know, lots of businesses that are in the even stronger positions today than they were pre-COVID. But again, there's a minority that have had very, very significant impacts and are struggling very, you know, very materially to find ways to make end meet. Yeah. So that complete different experience, one size doesn't doesn't fit all. And and Will, so we know you love your history, right? But but from what we're talking about here, I mean, this is sort of chiming somewhat with lessons that we've learned from from past pa- pandemics as well isn't it yeah to a certain extent i mean i think um nikki you know the point that matt was making there about the variability of the effects and also you know matt's spoken before we've all spoken before about the savings ratio effect and that certainly is consistent with a higher people wanting to save more of their post-tax earnings and you know in store for that now very visible you know imaginable rainy day that has been one of the things from past pandemics, and that is certainly the case so far in many developed economies, that people are saving more of their post-tax earnings. And that, you know, as we talked about, is, is a bad thing for growth. The only thing I'd say, and again, you know, the lessons from history, are, you, know, I, you know, I'm always trying to bring them up. But I, the, the main thing I think that we're always trying to get across is that is, is how wary you should be in drawing kind of direct lessons from history. You know, how comparable are... Um, you know, examples where your life expectancy was 40 or, you know, vaccines and treatments were non-existent. In fact, you know, the latter in many previous pandemics was more often a threat than a solution. So, you know, one of the treatments for the the great influenza pandemic of 1918 was a cancer-causing laxative. The other was dry champagne, you know, so, you know, which, which is, you know, the latter is a preferable, obviously, but I'm not sure it was very effective. And I do really think, you know, that, you know, whether... Whether whether plausible or not, the, the sort of the vaccine story, whether it's precisely correct that we're going to get, you know, a vaccine widely distributed over the course of 2021, that we're even talking about it at this stage with a handful of vaccines well into phase three trials already illustrates, you know, one of the upsides of, you know, the time we live in. 
It is mm. also, remember, that same incredible ingenuity and adaptability that we're accessing we're in a, when we invest uh, in a diversified pool of capital market and capital markets assets. That's exactly what we're trying to invest in, humankind's ability to adapt and invest. And I would say that actually this last year has been, in many ways, an example of exactly what you're trying to access. That vaccine and treatment story is, is an incredible difference to past eras. Yeah, and, and Matt, I mean, I guess that, that point on the vaccine race, which obviously we're all watching uh, incredibly intently, reminds me of when you were last on the podcast back in May, when, when you were talking about that that uh, old adage of necessity often being the the mother of invention. Yeah, and I, the three big areas I think we've seen, you know, really significant behavioral shift by people that have required businesses to then adapt. I think are from the sort of very sort of minute to the more macro. Obviously, you know, in the depth of lockdown, we saw a very significant not just change in spend, but also usage of cash. So. You know, at some points uh, through the middle of lockdown, cash usage was down 50 percent year over year. That's rebounded a little bit, but it's still down about 25 to 30 percent, notwithstanding the fact that, as I said a minute ago, overall spend is now recovered. Whether it stays that far down relative to past, I don't know. But our expectation is it will stay significantly lower going forward. It's another structural downturn. And I think people's use of cash, either because of whether appropriate or not concerns about health related to the uses of cash, but more just the fact that um, from a convenience standpoint, they've sort of learned if they hadn't previously to, to use and trust contactless payments even more than they had before, as well as obviously a lot more digital payments doing online shopping. That's caused businesses to need to adjust very significantly in how they interact with customers. Those businesses that have relied on cash historically and hadn't invested, if you will, in and the functionality and capability to be able to expect, accept non-cash payments have had to rush to be able to do that just to be able to conduct their business. Um, two, as I said a minute ago, obviously a huge shift, not least of which because people were sat at home and people doing online shopping. And as much as we've talked for, say, the last 15 years about the Internet revolutionizing how people do commerce, um, there were still businesses that were Luddites that hadn't really adjusted their business to that dynamic, either because they thought it wasn't relevant to them or they just thought they could um, continue to do it at, you know, or come back to it at some point in the future. And they've now had to, again, rush to be able to figure out uh, how to get their businesses to accommodate that. And then three, this you know, continued significant shift in where people are. Um, again, if you think about the acute implications of that for, you know, as, as the media likes to talk about the sort of prets of this world in um, you know, conurbations where people come together for work that are no longer doing that, they're obviously suffering. But at the other end, those local businesses where people live are thriving because uh, people are spending a lot more time in those local businesses or at least interacting with them than they would have if they'd gone to work every day in the way they did pre-crisis. So all of that's, I think, required businesses to significantly shift their own capabilities and their own uh, sort of interactions with customers in order to be able to make the most of the opportunities that are there. Yeah. And, and you know, what you're talking about there, Matt, around that further move into the digital world that we've seen and, and the crisis uh, somewhat accelerating that. At the same time, there's, there's all, almost a connected piece, which is that I think most of us are missing that form of human contact. Whatever our personal circumstances are, we are just generally interacting with far fewer people on a daily basis, certainly um, in, in real life, uh, maybe virtually we're, we're managing it. But, but you know, the human contact piece is, is something that I think most people are really 
missing, especially you know now that we are you know a full six months plus through this. Have have you had any further thoughts on that mix between the digital revolution, but also that similarly or seemingly unfailing wish for us as humans to have some kind of human contact? Yeah, I think if I just loosely uh, think about that in three contexts, one is from a commerce perspective, I think what, again, you know, there was already a big body of people that were using uh, online capabilities to be able to do their commerce even pre-COVID. But COVID has encouraged another swathe of the population to both try it, understand it, and get comfortable with it. And then even for those who were using it previously and those who've more recently adopted it, sort of use it far more extensively. And there's a sort of inherent convenience embedded within that for, I would say, most uh, purchases that don't necessarily involve what I'll loosely describe as advice, where you want to talk to an expert to say, is this really the right thing for me? Or um, is there something better that I could do? I think technology, again, has made that advice more accessible because you can now do that, you know, especially as you think about sort of 5G sort of arriving uh, at some point in the relatively near future over video. So you don't even need to be physically proximate to people to be able to get access to it. And so that humanity, if you will, technology can bring closer than maybe it was available even without the technology. But there is then in other walks of life, I think whether it's in your own personal life, I think, you know, what I hear a lot of people talk about, even from a work from home context, is the sort of monotony and rigidity of sitting at a, you know, staring at a piece of glass for, you know, nine, 10 hours a day, and <laughs> yeah. literally going from one conversation to the next conversation to the next conversation. And, and so what, what I think that's requiring people to do is, yes, there's an element of that that says, I need human interaction, but oddly, you're still getting it. It's just via a piece of glass rather than in physical context. What I think people need to, what are starting to learn is there's just different routines. You, you, the technology is still going to facilitate human connection, but we need to work together in different ways in order to be able to get what we need out of it emotionally relative to what we would do, if you will, in a physically proximate office environment. And then finally, there's, of course, you know, just your personal life. And again, I think the, the ease of lockdown has sort of enabled people to get better balance between you know, spending all your time with your, you know, immediate family, and then those more sort of friendship connections and uh, collaborative conversations that you would have beyond that. And I think, you know, as, as even as we move, hopefully, m not necessarily to a vaccine, but towards it through better test and tr uh, track and trace capabilities, we we'll be able to sort of manage the sort of need to be a little bit more self-isolated than pre-COVID, but still be able to get out and about and find better balance. And that, to me, is the ultimate lesson is, it's not about one or the other. It's about finding the right balance. And, you know, those of us of, of a certain age are maybe struggling a little bit more with how to do that. But I have no doubt that, again, invention being the mother of all necessity, we'll figure it out through time. Yeah. And, and that adaptability piece just keeps arising, doesn't it? And, and I think we're all, we're all starting to, to get a bit better at that. Um, but Will, you often talk to us about industrial revolution being, being one path out of this, one at least that would help pay down a lot of the debt accrued, you know, as, as we've tried to fight the economic impact as well as uh, obviously the health impact. Yeah, it, it, it's complicated though. And I think it's only one of the paths out of there, out of here, Nikki. I mean, you know, if you look through history and look for successful, relatively uh, benign paybacks, government uh, government debt paydowns. Um, there's really only a couple that spring to mind. Uh, so one is the UK post 1815, and the other is kind of the US 
um, post the Second World War, when kind of large government debt piles were relatively benignly paid down, primarily through um, you know productivity. So, you know, doing more with less, some of the things that you and Matt have been talking about there, some of the innovations that are coming through and, uh, you know, for instance, the reduced use of cash in the economy, but all the way back to, you know, if we go back to Excel spreadsheets and all the other kind of things that we talk about with regards to kind of productive innovation, those are the things that have sort of, you know, helped, um, helped. The, the the UK and world economy grow. Now, if you go back to one of those examples, so the UK in the 19th century, it was a pretty extreme example. So you had debt to GDP of over 200, about 250% of GDP to around 25% of GDP in less than 100 years by 1900. And all through which British living standards were rising you know, appreciably. That was the the first industrial revolution, and obviously we were, you know, we apparently sit in the foothills uh, of the fourth industrial revolution. So maybe unleashing that, re- you know, unleashing that on your economy will be part of the story. But remember, and I think the point from us is that this is still enormously challenging. Huge disruption to the labour market is what tends to happen during industrial revolutions. You know, in a sense, Matt referred to the Luddites just there. The Luddites were right. Um, you know, the, the, it, there is a huge <laughs> often a gap between how jobs are destroyed and how jobs are created. Mm. It can be quite a disconcerting one. Your social safety net is put under huge amounts of strain. You know, how you design your social safety net during those periods is enormously challenging. And and yeah, it it can be very difficult to live through. But from a debt perspective, that would be one of the easier ways out, I would suggest, of some of the sort of debts we've um, we've accrued. And remember, 250% of GDP is versus 100% of GDP, uh, roughly speaking, right now for government debt to GDP. Okay, so in that in that context, not 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 as bad as it could be. And um, by, <laughs> by the way, good, good shout out of uh, of Excel <laughs> being being the productivity boost. I think some people might raise an eyebrow at that this week. But uh, but final word, Matt, if I may. You know, we we've had a number of the senior leaders on. We've been lucky to attract them to come and share some of their insights with us. But one of the very consistent themes that has come across has been around. There's been many horrors and difficulties around this crisis, but but also that you know out of it has been some real examples of opportunity, adaptability, new growth, etc. Now now that we're a little bit further along in in our in our path through this uh, pandemic, how would you characterise some of those opportunities? How do you feel that we as Barclays are sort of positioned to take advantage and and help people more? Yeah, I think one of the I'm not, I don't have the same sort of quality of historical perspective as Will, but I guess my sort of very crude That's sort of you're interpretation of the past, <laughs> maybe, I doubt that. I think it's, I studied engineering instead. So the, you know, my crude interpretation of history is, is that when you go through something as acute as what we've just been through, it forces you to, to focus on the things that are most important. And suddenly the things that peripherally were occupying your mind um, sort of drift away. And when you do that, you realize that the the problems that you should be focusing your time on are readily apparent and staring you in the face. And I think, you know, socially, especially here in the UK, uh, you know, hopefully this will create a stronger consensus around what those fundamental issues are and and require, I guess, a lot more concerted effort to try to fix them. In the banking industry, some of those really step to the fore. So we've got a significant issue to do uh, to address as as a as an industry around, uh, for instance, this notion of access to cash. There's very strong data around the fact that even if the general usage of cash is going down, you've got 
um, a weight of infrastructure in places where people probably don't really need and don't use cash as much because they're a little bit more well off and it's a bit of a more urban environment. Whereas in more rural environments where maybe people, generally speaking, aren't as well off, there are cash deserts where there's no infrastructure to provide cash and maybe they're a bit more reliant on them. Those facts have been readily apparent for a long time, but the industry has had other things, if you will, alongside that to worry about. So it's never topped, come to the top of the list. It is now top of the list. And the, the authorities from the, with the government and the regulator are sort of working with us to now collectively solve that problem. And I think that sort of spirit of collective endeavor out of an, a very acute, painful uh, environment like we've been in the last six months is one of the sort of really significant opportunities. So we've got to solve that, but I can immediately start to see sort of other ones that build beyond it. Two, the nature of the way in which bank accounting now works, we've sort of taken our provisions for impairment in terms of um, the credit event related to the pandemic uh, in the first and second quarter of this year, but the event hasn't even happened yet. It's coming. Uh, that's still to come yeah. in December, January, February, I suspect, as the government support starts to ease, we go through whatever is going to happen in this so-called second wave. Through all of that, there's going to be a very acute set of financial circumstances that, and financial challenges that are going to need to be addressed. And again, I think the banking industry, generally speaking, and I hope we as an institution within it, have a very material opportunity in this environment relative to, say, the financial crisis 12 years ago to, if I can say it this boldly, to be a hero through that process rather than whatever we were regarded as last time. What that's going to require is obviously a very different level of attention and focus on helping people. Still some very difficult discussions because we can't fix some of the issues that will, I'm sure, arise as a consequence of that. But I'm confident that if we do it the right way, we can provide the right level of support and continue to evidence the fact that we're really here to, to help people, as we say, make money work for them rather than let the money uh, make them work. And then finally, I think the, the really acute thing for Barclays is if, if, if we believe the, the thesis that the current government has set out around needing to build back better and rebuild the economy through whatever means, then I think as a financial institution, Barclays is in a better position to help do that, given the breadth of capability that we have across the group than any other, any other financial institution in the UK. And I, I would hope that you know, we can find a way to work collaboratively, both with corporates, with consumers, and with government and other stakeholders around the edge of that to be you know, to play an outsized role in trying to figure out how best to build back better for the UK. Fabulous. So, so loads, loads to go for. And um, sounds like we know what the mission is. So thank you very much for joining us, Matt. Really appreciate it. Will, thanks as always. And thank you to our listeners and subscribers. Do keep, keep liking and sharing. And we'll be back next week. Thanks. All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.